The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Greg Quinn. He spent 25 years at the New York Botanical Garden. He has expertise in horticulture and culinary arts. He's an author of multiple books, but most significantly now, he is the owner of Walnut Grove Farm in Clinton, New York, in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley. And he has significance because he overturned the law that banned commercial cultivation of currants. And that is the story that we are going to dive into today. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Well, I glad read. To be here. I'm glad to have you. I read such an interesting article about you in Modern Farmer magazine, and I was going along, not really thinking much about black currants. I've certainly had them. They're delicious little berries, much like other black and deep purple fruits. They are rich in anthocyanins, powerful antioxidants, anti-inflammatories. But I didn't realize that currants couldn't be grown in the United States, that there was a law banning them. Tell me about why currants were banned. It's a pretty interesting story, actually. And we don't have a whole lot of time for the whole story right here, but it really goes back to when the settlers first came and they started cutting all of the white pines in the northeastern part of the United States. These are the five needle pines. And when I say northeast, I mean what is today Michigan to Maine to Virginia. I mean that whole swath of land. And we basically, nobody thought about reforestation back in those days. You just kept cutting. And when you cleared a field, you just moved on and cut more. And so by the late 1800s, we had pretty much denuded this whole section of white pines. And the United States established the uh, U.S. Forestry Service for the first time. And the first business of the U.S. Forestry Service was to reestablish the white pines. And we had no nursery infrastructure in this country. So we collected about 10 million white pine seeds sent them to Germany, which had a very big nursery infrastructure. They propagated them and sent back by ship a whole lot of of white pine seedlings, all of which were infected with a fungus called white pine blister rust. We went ahead and planted those little seedlings, not thinking much of it. And several years down the road, we saw a lot of the seedlings were getting sick. They brought in some pathologists, and they deduced that the problem was that this fungus needed two very distinctly different hosts to be able to complete its cycle, which was black currants, or actually the family of currants, currants and gooseberries, and white pine trees. And so in deference to this new effort to get the white pine trees, Congress, the U.S. Congress in 1911, enacted a law which banned commercial cultivation of black currants, red currants, gooseberries, and and everybody else in that family. So were gooseberries banned as well? You know, they were, they weren't specifically named at the time. They named the family Ribes. Ribes is the botanical name of the whole family. So the only two plants in that family are currants and gooseberries. Now, there are many varieties of gooseberries and there are many, many varieties of currants, including red currants, pink currants, white currants, green currants, and of course, black currants. 
So when I go to the grocery store and I buy, say, currant jelly or currant jam, where are those currants likely coming from? In most cases, it's imported. A lot of it comes from Holland. A lot of it comes from the UK. Some of it comes from that little tiny country near Switzerland called Liechtenstein. But most of it's imported. Since I got the ban overturned, there are more people locally, not nationally, but locally that are starting to grow currants and making their own preserves. But those are usually sold in farmer's markets and so forth. Right. But it's still interesting to see which states have restrictions on growing currants, even though they're really not an issue anymore. It's not so much that they're not an issue. It's just that things have changed. And so they've developed varieties that are more resistant to the disease. We're not growing as many white pine trees as we were in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And this disease really only is devastating for small seedlings. And so it's, it's an issue. It is a disease. It is a fungus. It is out there. But it's not as big of an issue as it used to be. Okay. So I have read that there are now black currant growers in New York, Oregon, Illinois, and Minnesota. And I guess <laughs> we're calling black currants for once forbidden berries. But the ban still remains on the books in Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, Virginia, and West Virginia. And in places like Michigan, a permit is required to plant them. Is that still related to the white pine? It is. And basically, the reason for that, with the possible exception of Maine, which I'll talk about in a second, the reason for that is that no one in those states has really picked up the baton. So this was, as I said, a federal law in the beginning. It was Congress that passed this law. And then it was kicked to states' jurisdiction in the 60s, as often happens with these archaic laws. And so every state said, you know, basically the federal government said, you make their own determination whether you want to allow it or not. And most states just took the law. Currents weren't a big thing. They basically stuck it in the bottom drawer of the file cabinet, and that was the end of that. And until I came along and sort of got it going. Now, the states where it's legal, most of the people have used New York as their example, their precedent, to get their laws changed. But in the states that you mentioned, no one has picked up the baton to get that law changed. Now, I mentioned that Maine was an exception. Maine is called the pine tree state. So <laughs> they're really very reluctant to do anything that even remotely might be a, a problem for pines. And so it may remain illegal in Maine for a very long time. Right. Well, the berries are certainly extremely nutritious, and it's great to have biodiversity increasing on our farmland. But your situation is interesting because you bought the farm first, and then you were looking for a niche or specialty crop that you could grow that was different from what was more routine or typical in the region, like apples and hay, for example. So... Tell me about how you went from, you know, what was your aha moment where you thought, okay, I think black currants might be the specialty crop for me? You know, it, I mean, I can tell you almost right down to the afternoon. Um, I was visiting, I was trying to figure out what we we're going to do on this farm. And because of my horticultural background, I wasn't, as you said, interested in the common crops. I was looking for a niche crop. I also have a food background. So I wanted something that was a little bit different, a little bit unusual. And I started visiting a lot of farms and a lot of producers in the area to see what people were doing. And I happened to visit the local vineyard. And the day that I visited them, they were making cassis. Now, cassis, as you know, is the alcoholic version. It's a, it's a, an aperitif, a liqueur. And in fact, cassis is the French word for blackcurrant. 
And this particular vineyard was making test seeds. And I said to him, where do you get your currants? Because of my experience with the botanical gardens, I knew they were illegal. And the vintner told me, he said, oh, it's just a pain. He said, I have to go to Canada and bring them in because it's illegal to grow here. And I knew of the law, but it never really popped up on my radar. And when he said that, a little light bulb went off. And I thought, huh, let me look into this. And that was the beginning. Yeah, but you've done something remarkable. And not only did you get the law changed, you also really, you weren't a farmer. You bought this land. And you decided now you've got 50 acres of black currants in production, if the last article I read about you is correct. Uh-huh. 50 acres. Is, yeah. Okay. So now you've got the challenge of bringing to market these black currants. Walk me through the steps that you took. You know, it's, for most farmers, it's sort of an unusual thing. I mean, these days, it's changed a little bit because a lot of farmers will hawk their wares at the local farmer's market. And farmer's markets have been a great boon to most farmers. But for the most part, most farmers do not make commercial branded products and take them to market. They grow a crop, in the case of crop farmers, and they sell it to a producer who then puts it into a jar and puts a label on it and the brand and whatever. But because nobody knew what currants were, I really wanted to control how currants were introduced to the American public. They're such a wonderful fruit that I didn't want them to just get swept up and say, oh, okay, here's another berry and another juice and ho-hum. You know, they're just, their health benefits are extraordinary. Their taste is unique. And of course, the story about them being outlawed was wonderful. Yeah. And so I decided against the advice of everybody that's sane, <laughs> I decided <laughs> to grow them and market them at the same time. I, as I, I like to say, it's, it's a perfect example of having one foot in the boat and one foot on the dock. Well, I should say, yeah, that was quite a risky behavior, but you've been very successful. And what I love about it is the fact that you've brought a unique crop back to the region. You've also increased the biodiversity of diets in the region and anybody else who buys the product but you've also been able to fuel economic development in the region with the specialty crop. And I think that it's really refreshing for people to understand or see examples of individuals like yourself who are able to really develop a regional economy or give boost to it through a new crop. Yeah, it, it's really all of these things tend to trickle down, and, and this one not the least of which there are several folks who buy my currants, and they turn them into cassis. They combine them with honey to make wonderful black currant mead. We actually sell to many craft breweries around the country that combine currants with mead. Black currants and beer products go way, way back, well over 100 years in England. It's a great marriage. It's a great pairing of flavors. Who would have um, thought? We sell to wineries. Yeah, it just works. Every once in a while, you stumble across something in, in the culinary arts, and you think, wow, why didn't I think of that? Right. And, and beer and black currants. I mean, in fact, in England, in London, you can go into most pubs, and you can order things like Guinness and black, which is a Guinness and black currant. You can order a snake bite, which is basically an ale and a black currant, or black velvet, which is a more of a pilsner and a black currant. So, yeah, it's, it's very popular. And craft breweries, as you know, you know, there's a new one popping up about every 20 minutes now. Right. And 
we sell to many, many craft breweries around the country, and many of them have won awards and ribbons uh, with their black currant offerings. It's really quite extraordinary and a lot of fun to watch. Oh, absolutely. And I actually contacted one of your buyers. She makes cassis, and I was really intrigued by some of her ingredients, and I will just second your vote for this beverage. It is a really delicious liqueur. So that's wonderful to know that we have now a local source of based in this country. So I want to talk a little bit about your culinary history, because I thought it was interesting from your bio that not only did you teach at the New York Botanical Garden, but you also had a restaurant in Bavaria. Where did that fall in your work history? (laughs) (laughs) Well, like a lot of my stories, it just, I think fall is the operative verb there. I went to Europe with very little knowledge of food. You know, I grew up in kind of a blue collar middle class family and, and dinner was meatloaf and canned string beans. And we didn't think much about flavors and nutrition and culinary stuff. And and then I moved to Europe. I was with the um, military. I'm a vet. I was with the army at the time. And I was a linguist for Czech and Slovak. And, and I was on the uh, Bavarian border. And uh, I had some free time on my hands. And so I got involved in this restaurant. And I discovered food for the first time in my life. And I, I had this epiphany. I discovered that fresh food tastes better than canned food. Who knew? <laughs> um, so I, I started getting involved in food and working with this restaurant. And it, it just started a love affair with food that continues to this day. And I'm, I'm just crazy about every aspect of food, growing it, shopping for it, reading about it, the nutrition, the flavors, everything. Yeah. It excites me. I agree with you. Let's take one break because we're halfway through and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Greg Quinn, who spent 25 years at the New York Botanical Garden. He has expertise in horticulture and culinary arts. And most significantly now, he is the owner of Walnut Grove Farm in Clinton, New York, in the beautiful Hudson Valley. And he is growing currants. And we are talking about their extremely delicious nutritional benefit and taste. And I want to get back to the restaurant in Bavaria for a moment because you had mentioned on one of your posts on your website that you noticed that the black currants were growing behind the restaurant. Were they used at the time in the restaurant? We did a little bit. I was just learning about them. They were quite common. You know, black currants specifically, all currants, but black currants specifically, are really, really popular in throughout all of Europe. Interestingly enough, they're really popular in the temperate climates where you can grow them in the entire world. In fact, the United States is the last country in the world not to know about black currants because of the ban 100 years ago. And so in many of the countries in Europe, Black currants and growing black currants, whether it's on a farm or in your backyard, you know, two or three bushes, it's ubiquitous. It's just everywhere. And so there were three or four current bushes in Bavaria, in, in Deutsch, it's uh, Johannes Schwarz. And so there was these Johannes Schwarz bushes growing behind the restaurant. And there were these mysterious little berries that I hadn't encountered before that were tart and they were interesting. And some of the locals told me about the benefits and how they use them for gout and they use them for stomach upset and they use them for, you know, when, when they were having a, a flame up with some kind of inflammation. And that was my real first real introduction to it. Yeah. Well, you know, I also looked up the nutritional benefits and because I'm very interested, like you, in addition to the culinary arts, 
Also, what are the specific nutritional compositions of these berries and how do they work in the body? And I found some research done on mice that looked at their ability to lower blood sugar. So that, of course, is so important. It wasn't just the black currants, of course. It was all of these dark colored berries that offer very similar sure. benefits. But the black currants in particular have, of course, a unique nutritional profile. They are listed in the Peterson Field Guide to Medicinal Plants and Herbs. And what a shame that we haven't had much familiarity. And I'm hoping that because of your work, we can get more black currants in more backyards even. I am encouraging people to get rid of their lawns and all the chemicals that go along with those lawns and instead replace some of that grass with food. And I think that berry crops are really important. And I love that you are actually selling a couple of different cultivars. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, I'm selling the, the seedlings for folks to plant them. Now, they can only be planted in zones six or below. So they don't do well. They need a thousand hours a year of low freezing temperatures to be able to set their fruit. So unfortunately, you can't grow them down south. You're just going to have to buy them from me. <laughs> right. But yeah, we sell the seedlings for all those folks that are in the northern part of the kind of above the Mason-Dixon line, if you will. And sure, we'd love to see more and more people growing them because they are unbelievably nutritious. Right. And it's just like having a little source of medicine in your own backyard that I think is so important. And for many people who can't afford to buy fresh fruits and vegetables, or they're not accessible maybe, or maybe they're not affordable, but you can have your own. And I really appreciate the fact that you're making them available. You also have a wide variety of products that you process and sell. That must have been a challenge for you in going again from these plantings of the berries and then getting them to people's tables. Did you sell at farmer's markets at all, or did you bypass that route? We kind of bypassed the route because I was more interested in really growing the market and getting it into into the supermarkets. And uh, actually, especially during COVID, e-commerce has really helped us a lot. Folks right. Stumbled across us. And I was interested in more of a wider market than what a farmer's market, a local farmer's market would offer me. And so we really wanted to have a variety of products. We wanted to introduce people to the flavor of black currants. And then, of course, you know, people are very smart today. I mean, the majority of consumers out there, in addition to something tasting good, a lot of people want to look at that label. They want to know what they're putting in their mouth or in their family's mouths. And currants are one of those few things that, in addition to being really different flavored, wonderful, great, again, I know I'm harping on the nutritional value, but they're quite extraordinary. And, and so when people find out about that, you know, that this really great tasting nectar, for example, is all of a sudden over the top in, in nutrients. It's just an exciting to watch that develop. Well, in going from farm to table, you need processors and packaging plants and all of those intermediary operations that allow you to get your agricultural product onto people's tables. How did you go about yep. setting that up? You know, it was difficult in the beginning. You know, when you go to these processing plants, the majority of processing plants, you know, they're a business. So you can go in there and you can tell them, oh, my currants have twice the antioxidant of blueberries. They're not really interested in that. What they're interested in is, can you pay for 10,000 bottles tomorrow? Can you sell 10,000 bottles? Can you do that again next week? They're not interested. So for small producers, for small farmers, and it's one of the great big speed bumps 
for farmers all around the country. To make a wonderful product and get it to market, certainly the farmer's markets, as I said originally, have helped a lot. But if you want to go beyond that and you want to start doing it, there's that great big gulf in the middle between being small and being big. Right. And you have to find a bottler, for example, if you're making juice like we were at the beginning, you have to find a bottler that's willing to work with you and do 100 cases instead of 10,000. And that's really difficult. Yeah, you've got to have that infrastructure in place. And then you have to consider, well, how many miles do I have to carry my agricultural product? And how does that all work? So let's go to the farm. And it's harvest time. You've got mechanical harvesters. Is that correct? Yeah, I imported one from Poland because they don't make them here in the United States because there's no need for them. And what about farm labor? How many people do you hire? And is it hard to get the hired help? You know, I'll be honest with you, it's myself and one other fella, and then during harvest season, we'll take on one guy for, for two, but myself and one other guy can pretty much handle the, the farm. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a labor of love, of course, but the good thing about currants is they don't need a lot of attention. You know, harvest season obviously is pretty full. Uh, weeds are the biggest problem with currants. They don't experience many diseases. The deer, which is a huge problem here in the Northeast, as it was like in a lot of parts of the country, the deer don't like currants. I think they're just too tart and they don't like the leaves. So, you know, they're good on their own. They don't require a lot of work. Yeah. Well, before we get into the weed issue, let's go back. You've just harvested these berries. You've got them in a truck, I'm assuming. And then you, uh -huh. you have to bring them to your processor. And I'm assuming you're not doing on-farm processing. Yeah, that's right. We don't do the processing on the farm. So one of two things happens depending on the situation. In some cases, some local folks, uh, commercial B2B people like wineries or ice cream makers, whatever, they want to get the fresh currants right out of the field. And so they'll literally drive out. They'll call in advance and say, well, there you're harvesting. And they'll drive out and load up, you know, we'll, we'll pack them in 50-pound boxes right out in the field. And uh, off they go. The currants go from our harvester into a refrigerated truck that's sitting out in the field because we harvest in the first part of July and the temperatures can be 90 degrees thereabouts so yeah. on, on the harvest day. So we need to chill those berries down as quickly as possible. So I've got a, a reefer truck running out in the field and we just take the boxes from the harvester right out to the truck to begin the chilling process. And then oftentimes we'll take them right to the freezer from there. Okay. And that gives us a little bit of breathing room about getting them off to the processor. Right. Currants freeze really well. They've got a very thick skin. And actually, for the purposes of processing, freezing is a good thing. It helps to break up the cellular structure of the fruit a little bit so you get that much more juice out of it. Right. Yeah. And I like frozen berries quite a bit. They're really versatile in the culinary space. And I know that it, they're squeezed, they're put into juices and concentrates. But what I like about the whole berries is that you get the extra fiber from the skin. And many Absolutely. times, yeah. the concentrations of those anthocyanins are heaviest just either in the skin or right below the skin. So yeah, I like exactly the right. whole fruit whenever possible. And I'm glad to see that you have a frozen berry product available. So some companies are coming to your farm and picking them up, and then they do their own pressing and processing, say, to make ice cream or liqueur. And then you've got right. your own processing, though. How far do you have to bring those berries to get bottled? Well, 
our bottling plant, and we now own our own small, it, it's too grandiose to say it's a processing plant. I call it a kitchen, but it's about a thousand square foot facility we have. It's, oh, I'm probably 25 miles away. And in that facility, we'll do all of our smaller scale processing, like our preserves, our jams, and our jellies, and our current syrups and, and chocolate covered currants. All those kinds of things are done there. The juice, uh, the nectar, is a little bit of a bigger process, and we take that to a bottler. And that bottler is, again, within a half hour, 40 minutes away, so it's not too difficult. Well, you really lucked out there because I know for other growers, finding those intermediaries that are essential in getting that product from farm to table, they may have to travel hundreds of miles. So it's it's wonderful that you've, yeah, you've got a great setup. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the agricultural process. You mentioned that weeds can be a problem. I want to talk about climate. I know you're not certified organic, but I understand from your techniques that you're not using pesticides, that you've got a really nice ability to produce the fruit without toxins. Yeah, we don't use any either organic or synthetic, um, natural or synthetic pesticides. And weeds, as I say, are the biggest problem. And I've actually got a mechanical weeder uh, goes right on my tractor. And basically, just it, it kind of hangs off the side of the tractor and it works with a joystick like you would with a video game. And you can kind of move it in and out of the rows, and it just disturbs the soil two or three inches down and rips up the weeds by the roots. And as long as you stay on top of them and they don't get too big, it's pretty easy to do. So that works well. And um, yeah, so we don't we don't have to. As I said, the current uh, diseases aren't really a big problem. We do have a, a fungus that gets into them that's different from the white pine lister rust, um, and uh, we find that um, you know, with our operation, we're still small enough. We're not thousands of acres, so we can actually go in there in the springtime. This fungus appears by the branches exhibiting uh, yellow leaves, and we just literally go down there and cut those branches out. That's able to control it. So we don't have to spray anything on it. On well, I certainly appreciate that. And I think that I'm going to say that because you don't use those toxic chemicals, your soil health is better, and therefore the flavor of your berries is enhanced. You know, The more we learn about those connections, those subtle connections between the microbial health of the soil and the fruit and the nutritional benefit, I think you've got a, a fabulous system here. You know, I knew our time would fly. Do you have anything that you want to leave our listeners with? You know, again, I, I mean, my mission is to really introduce people, since I started with this thing, to this, this wonderful forbidden fruit, as, as it was called. And, uh, and again, once you've discovered this thing, there was a study not too long ago in Scotland that measured the 20 top most popular fruits in the world, and black currants came out number one ahead of everything. Wow. Twice the antioxidant of blueberries, four times the vitamin C of oranges, more potassium than bananas. I mean, it's unbelievable this little what this little berry is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Greg, for spending your time with me this afternoon and also just reinvigorating the region with a specialty crop and to reintroduce us to a flavor and a nutritional benefit that we wouldn't otherwise have been able to experience. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Greg Quinn, 
expertise in horticulture and culinary arts, owner of Walnut Grove Farm in Clinton, New York, and he significantly overturned the law banning commercial cultivation of currants, and he is producing them right here in the United States. Greg, I will provide a link to your website as well as the excellent TED Talk that you gave, just getting into the story of how you got where you are. So with a big thank you, thanks for telling your story. Thank you, Melinda. It's been a pleasure.